Hello and welcome to Give Yourself the Chat. I'm your host, Peter Lewis, and this is the show dedicated to discussing ideas and philosophies to help you live a life of high performance. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Give Yourself the Chat. This podcast episode, I've got a, a chap called Leveson Wood with me at the moment, and uh, we share a military past and a few connections, but it's really as a, as a writer, photographer, and explorer that I'm chatting to Leveson today. And just a time stamp, stamp this, we're still in pandemic. So I'm, I'm guessing Leveson for an explorer. That's This is an interesting time for you. Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. No, thanks for having me on. It is, isn't it? It's, it's it's a fascinating sort of time to sort of try and get through and thrive in the circumstances. I mean, for me, this is probably the longest period in my entire adult life that I've been stuck in one place. And yeah, I'll be honest, first few months, I actually quite enjoyed it. It was the the novelty of being in a home in static yeah. is something that I've not really experienced in, in a very long time. So I... I kind of embraced it and I got a dog and uh, all that sort of stuff and, and just tried to, to, to make the most of the time by writing and focusing on all the things that I'd put off for, for many, many years. And so it's been, it was quite productive, although I have to say now I'm definitely ready for, a, ready for an adventure and, and it's time to get back on a plane somewhere. Well, I can only imagine because what we're sort of six, seven months in, it's now, you know, mid-October and there's talk here in the UK of a second wave and everything else like that. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, first of all, we have to be grateful that we have our health and, and, and therefore we have the opportunity to bemoan being kind of stuck indoors and what have you. You said you got a dog. Is that is that recent? Is that a pandemic puppy that you've got? <laughs> he is, yeah. Byron, he's a Rhodesian Ridgeback, six months old now getting very, very big and very, very heavy, eating me out of house and home. <laughs> well, the only reason I ask is that we've got a pandemic puppy as well. So we've got Oko the Whippet, who's 14 weeks old this week. Lovely. And he is in the kitchen as we speak right now. And I've given him all sorts of ethical bribes to keep him quiet for 40 minutes worth of a podcast episode. But <laughs> that, it's amazing. It's, it's a pretty steep learning curve, actually. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever, if you've had kids or anything, but my kid's now grown up, but it's just like going back to being a parent. And uh, Yeah, I don't have kids, but he's a big baby. I mean, if you hear any sort of cow-like noises, that's Byron grunting in the background. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So writer, photographer, explorer, ex-parachute regiment, everything else like this. What have you been doing during sort of pandemic that links to what is your bread and butter stuff? Tell me about any projects that you've managed to keep going. So, well, initially, I, I kind of actually, I wanted to sort of do my bit. So I ended up volunteering for a veterans charity called what was then called Team Rubicon, now Op React, which was helping the NHS, particularly on the sort of the slightly more macabre sense of things that was it, working at the crematorium and body handling and, and things like that, which yeah. was which was quite an eye-opener, particularly at the, be the very beginning when nobody really knew how you know, impactful Corona is going to be. But yeah, so I was doing that for a bit. I've been working a lot on, on projects that obviously didn't involve traveling. So a lot of writing. I've been working on a photography book, which has just been published. And that's called Encounters. I mean, if, if, if no other reason than just to go through and, and sift through 50,000 images that I somehow collected yeah. over the years, it was a great opportunity to, to revisit some of my old trips and to collate, you know, all of this imagery and, and then the rather 
ruthless and brutal process of, of having to hack that down to 150 photos for a, oh, wow. a coffee table book. So it was it was quite the challenge, but really I'm re- very, very happy with it. It really is a sense that it's basically for me that the last 10 years of, of traveling, you know, a decade's worth of photographs in one place. So I'm going to be well stocked for, for Christmas presents this year. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And so tell me about sort of life as an, as an explorer. What, what what would you describe your your sort of purpose or your what drives you in, in, in the form of exploration? Is it about sort of conservation? Is it about education? I, mean, I guess it's a lot of things, but what would you say is at the core or at the heart of you as an explorer? I think it started out really just as pure and simple curiosity. Right. I always, always wanted to see the world. You know, I grew up in a very, in a small village in, in the Midlands in Staffordshire and, and kind of, wanted to go and explore the world. I grew up on my grandfather's stories of, of the Second World War. He was in Burma, you know, in, in, in the Far East. And my father was a teacher who also encouraged me to be curious about the world. And and so it was a combination of, of that background, a love of, of reading. And I, I studied history at university and bringing together a few hobbies like writing, photography, that, that kind of kick-started my career 10 years ago when I left the parachute regiment. Mm. And I think... After that, it was then how does one turn all of these passions and interests into a a way of life? And I was, you know, initially it was hard work because, you know, you don't just turn up at the careers office and say, I want to be an explorer. There's a lot of business behind it. There's a lot of creativity in terms of coming up with new projects. And then, of course, you then feed into, you know, how do you make it work long term? And, And so for me, it was, I guess wanting to travel travel for me has always been that was my first love and it and it really still is a huge part of of what i do going to see new places and and document them and and record for other people who are perhaps less fortunate who who can't travel or or don't necessarily want to go on their you know their their summer leave to afghanistan or iraq or places yeah. like that and then with that comes a real sense of duty to bring those stories home and and, and for me I, I don't think i went into it with any lofty aspirations of 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 sorts that kind of came later when i realized the importance and power of some of the stories and images that i was coming home with it really can make a difference and off the back of my first televised journey, which was walking the Nile. I, I walked the length of the, the River Nile in 2013 into, 20, into 2014. You know, I, I made a, a sort of a critically acclaimed documentary, wrote a best-selling book and all of that. But the thing that I'm most proud of is that off the back of it, I got a very nice letter from the head of the in-country head of Save the Children in South Sudan, who said, we've been trying to put South Sudan on the map for the past 20 odd years and, and it's failed and we, we, we've not really achieved much in terms of fundraising. And one documentary can, can suddenly bring in thousands, if not millions of pounds yeah. of one charity. And, and so it made me think actually that there's not, it's not just me on my jollies that this can have a really profound effect. And, and so I've, the, the last decade, I've really tried to work with causes that I feel passionate about and I'm, I'm, very passionate about conservation and I'm a, a supporter of UNICEF and, and other educational charities. So it, it's a lot of things mm. to answer a very, a very mm. complicated answer to your question there, but it's it, exploration now isn't, it's not that Victorian sort of mustachioed cocky, you know, cocky sort of trousers and pith helmet yeah. sticking flags in the map anymore. I think it's, it's about documenting change, 
showing people what the world is really like beyond the the gaze of the sort of mainstream media and yes. putting yourself out there on the front line, living and breathing it and, and showing people what life is really like. So how do you choose which adventure to go on? How do you choose which story to sort of champion? Is it, mm. is it still that curiosity that you have personally or is it driven by something else now? I think it has to be personal. For me, I've, I, you know, all the ideas have, have been mine for, for, for all of the, the journeys and expeditions. And I've been offered all sorts of random TV jollies along the way. And I've yeah. so far turned them all down because I've wanted to do journeys that mean something to me. And whether that's a subject that I might have studied at university or, or a place, a region in the world that's current in the news and I feel like it needs a spotlight shining on it. It has to be personal, the core of it. Otherwise, it lacks authenticity. And I think people latch onto that, and that comes across. If, if something's just made for TV, the audience is not stupid. They, they, they know that, and it's just not as organic and, and authentic. So I've always chosen places that I, you know, a lot of the time it's just something as simple as, I, you know, I went there on my gap year when I was 18 and, and yeah. fell in love with the place or yeah. met an interesting person or had a really – incredible encounter and I wanted to go and revisit it and see how the place has changed over the last 20 years. So, and, and that was certainly the case for places like I did a journey around the Middle East. I traveled from Iraqi Kurdistan all the way around to through Syria, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, finishing in, in Lebanon. And that was all inspired by a journey when, that I did when I was 21 at university when I traveled to Iraq during the, the second Gulf War in 2003. And so a lot of them linked together nicely. And I quite like that. Mm. Uh, well, just as you were describing that, I can only imagine there's, there's quite a, an administrative and logistic problem to crack there, just in seeking permission, presumably, to go across borders and, and everything else like that. I mean, how much of that has to be all in place from the get-go or how much is it you negotiating your way on it? I mean, is it truly an adventure in that regard? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it really is. <laughs> I mean, my the Arabia trip in particular, you know, it was going crossing borders that, that, are, that mean lots of different things to lots of different people. So it was very, very difficult. We certainly didn't have all the permissions in place before embarking on that journey. Some places we visited, we didn't have permission full stop, but that's another story. You know, <laughs> it's it very, very tricky. And it's difficult to produce from a television perspective. And it's sometimes difficult to communicate to the powers that be within television what you want to do and how you want to achieve it, because it's not quite as simple as going to the local embassy and asking for a visa and thank you very much, there's your passport back. It doesn't work like that if you want to go to Yemen or if you want to be embedded with the Hashid in Iraq or if you want to cross into Rojava in Syria. It's it's Mm. a different different style of diplomacy in those places. So, But I think that's what makes makes these sorts of expeditions and journeys unique is that challenge and that difficulty. And they're not, you know, it's not, made for TV stuff. This is not, you know, grand designs or whatever. This is this is yeah. an actual expedition, a journey to a, a place that is often forgotten about or difficult to get access to. And in doing so, you have to go and really put yourself out there. And sometimes it's, you know, there, there are times when you think, oh dear, have I overstepped the mark here? Or is this a bridge too far? Excuse the pun, but but so far, you know, touch wood, it's all worked out. I mean, you, you've hinted there that you've clearly, you would have had some hairy moments, I'm sure. Which ones really, I mean, is there anything that still kind of keeps you awake at night when you think back at them? Or is it all just part <laughs> of, you know, do you take it in your stride as an ex-soldier perhaps would? <laughs> I think you you kind of have to. I don't try, I don't dwell on any, uh, any of those experiences. Maybe they should keep me up at night, but thankfully they don't. I mean, we were in Iraq 2017 
like I say, embedded with with some of the militia groups as they were fighting against ISIS. That involved, you know, being in a, a sort of convoy of pickup trucks driving straight across the desert into ISIS territory, you know, straight towards the black flags and getting shot at, you know, getting ambushed along the way. And, and that was quite a remarkable experience, as you, mm. as you can imagine. But it's it's often not the it's often not the sort of glamorous or or sort of the romantic side of things that, that that is the most dangerous. Often it's the more banal stuff like getting ill in a country or what happened to me on my Himalayas expedition back in 2015, which was simply getting into a taxi and then driving over a mountain pass where the, the brakes failed and, and the taxi went flying off the edge of a cliff. And I was very lucky to survive. You know, it was yes. a 400 foot drop and, and escape with a broken arm and a couple of broken ribs. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. And so, when you're doing these expeditions and you've got your TV crew there, I mean, when you're in the military, you can rely on the on the blokes around you and the, mm. the infrastructure, and just know that they're taken care of. But it's a very different dynamic. Do you personally select the the crew, and and how do you ensure that actually they're not going to let you down, you're not going to let them down, and and you can operate as a unit as you go on these these adventures? How, how does that yeah. work out? Well, the crew, when you're away for, I mean, my Nile journey was nine months long and, and with the best will in the world, you can't pay a, a crew to be there the whole time. So they they kind of popped along for week-long stints, I think five times over the course of nine months. So they were only there for a fraction of the time. The rest okay. of the time was just me with, you know, whoever my local guide at the time happened to be. Yeah. So, you know, when they do come out over the years, I've, I've, I've selected my own team now. So I've got a, a really good guy, gang of, of, of mates now, really, who, who are with me, people who I trust, people who've done, you know, most of them actually have relevant military experience. They're ex-army themselves or, or, or at the very least, you know, the cameramen who are, you are more specialist, you know, they've done the, the high risk and safety courses. So, you know, how to, get out of kidnap situations and all the rest of it. So, so they're all very highly trained, very highly skilled. And I trust them implicitly. You have to, because you know, these expeditions, they're not, it's not a one man show. It's not, it's not down to, down to me. It's ultimately down to the immediate team of people. And particularly in places like, you know, in, in the Middle East, when I was going through Yemen, you can't have a big footprint. You can't have a big circus of, of cameramen following you around. You know, it, it's you and your mate in this, you know, pretty much in covert gear, looking like a local with a hidden camera. So it's, it can be quite sneaky beaky at times, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's part of the thrill, I'm sure. I'm sure. So you, you've got your, your photography book, your coffee table book that you've, you've produced and it's out there. You've also got another project in mind that we talked about before we sort of hit record on this. Tell me about that and the sort of the lessons you draw from these rich adventures that you're having. One of the other things that I do is I do a lot of public speaking and, and do, you know, theatre tours to talk about my, my expeditions. And what I wanted to do is, particularly in the wake of, you know, lockdown and having had time to ponder some of the bigger questions around my, my journeys, is to compile a sort of a compendium of, of stories that didn't make it into my expedition books and think about some of the lessons learnt from them and, and what, Wisdom, I suppose, can be gained from from travel, from expeditions, from you know some of these adventures. So I'm currently working on a book called The Art of Exploration, which hopefully does that. It aims to answer some of the questions that I get thrown at, you know, some of the curveball questions that I get asked in my Q and A sessions or, right. or my my lecture tours, and because you know you, you get some really fascinating questions there on on leadership, teamwork, motivates me, and things like that. So hopefully. It, it tries to answer some of those questions and how you can then apply those lessons in, in daily life. 
So give us an example then, if any questions that kind of spring to mind that you would describe mm. as curveball, because, you know, there, there's your story, there's your backstory and everything else yeah. like this, but which questions are perhaps <laughs> have completely yeah, come well, out Yeah, well, I mean, it, and- it's kind of, I guess, one of the one of the most frequently asked questions is, is what, what motivates me when you're going through those difficult or dangerous situations? And, you know, you, you kind of have to think about it. It's, it's what, what really motivates you and drives you to carry on when the odds are stacked against you, when you think you might not succeed and, and, and what, what do you then do and, and how do you turn something that potentially go very, very wrong into, into a positive. So I try and answer some of those mindset questions about positivity, about resilience and about being adaptable and, and using not only my experiences, but a few anecdotes from other explorers or mm. historical people as well to, to try and liven up some of the more theoretical side that, that, that we often get given in, in self-help books and make yes. it really applicable. Well, yeah, and I think the challenge there is quite often those. Well, particularly if you're describing things, it can come across as quite abstract for the the person who has not been on an adventure beyond mm. their TV screen or whatever, and they're reading about other people's adventures vicariously. So, how how do you kind of make it concrete? This idea of resilience. I mean, resilience to the military mind is built up just through experience and all those other things. But how do you? help people in a concrete way, perhaps around resilience? What, yeah. what, what kind of things do you advise them around? Well, so so what I try and do is talk about how, you know, I'll use an example from me being whatever, snapped up by crocodiles or shot at by ISIS, and then bring it home and say, you know, how that, that can happen at the more, more extreme side of things. But, but back home, you might just be, you know, having a bit of a quibble with your business partner. What do you do in that situation? So mm. I, I try and draw upon not just the more extreme examples, but you know, what it was like for me when I left the military, for example, and I was sort of scrambling around thinking what to do next and how I sort of managed to sort of survive through probably three years of basically being homeless, not in the sense that I was on park benches, although that did happen a couple of times, but <laughs> the fact that I was like investing all of my army savings into trying to to drive a new business, to try and to set myself up to do what mm. I'm doing now and, and some of the risks, and I think risk is a critical part of, uh, of all of this, really, whether that's setting up a new business or, or going on an expedition. It's how do you gauge what's acceptable risk, what your own personal tolerance for risk is, and that around you. And in order to, you know, have a vision, create a team, and then how do you fulfill that vision by driving things forward? So I try and draw upon all those lessons that I learned, not just whilst in the wilds of Africa and Asia, yeah. but also in the early days of, of having left the army as a 30, whatever, 29, 30 year old to then, you know, coming up with a plan and, and applying some of the lessons that I learned, you know, from, from whether, whether that's from Sandhurst or, or, you know, things like that. And I think those more tangible lessons, you know, whether that was discussing, you know, with a team, a new idea and, and falling out how to perhaps execute that idea is stuff that people can relate to. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, we talk about risk and I think quite often people look at perhaps your situation or or even perhaps um, more closer to home with me. I mean, we both left the army. We both sort of set up these projects. I set up my own consultancy. And a lot of people turn to me and say, well, gosh, that was so, you took a big risk there. I said, well, no, far from it. I, I actually thought about it. I planned for it. And whilst you can't plan for every eventuality, the yeah. process of planning allows you to be adaptable when, you know, life does kind of give you a curveball. So ironically, some of these things that you're talking about, you probably think, well, actually, I'm not taking big risks because mm. there's it's all part of the planning. It's all part of contingency and everything else like this. 
But from the outside in, it feels like oh, they're taking big risks. But quite often, it's not the case, is it? Absolutely. You know, I remember when I was 21 and I was sat on this roof of a hotel in, in Jordan. And, you know, I think my parents thought I was on holiday in Greece on the beach. And me, <laughs> me and my mate, we'd, we'd been done some backpacking around Egypt and Israel. And we were in Jordan. And this was in 2003. There was the war in Iraq was sort of raging on that summer. And then there'd been a, it was just the start of, of the sort of spate of suicide bombings in the region that, that really began with that conflict. And it just so happened that just as we crossed the border into Jordan, a bomb had gone off in, in, in Israel, somewhere in Jerusalem, which meant that they'd closed the Jordanian border. They'd sealed the, the routes to Europe. So it was, all, it was all getting locked down there for very different reasons. And we were thinking, OK, what do we do now? We could, we could try and fly home, but we didn't want to, you know, we had no money because we were students. And knowing full well that the only other border that was open was to to the east into Iraq itself, and we were waiting. You know, on the on the on the sort of face of it, it sounds absolutely insane to think yeah. that going into Iraq would be dangerous. And we met this Iraqi taxi driver who told us that he did the commute every couple of days to go and see his mum in Baghdad, but he came and worked in Jordan because it was easier. The border was open because obviously the Americans were in control of the border. And he said something that, that stayed with me for a very long time. He said, do you know what the population of Iraq is? I said, I don't. I think it was something about 50 or 60 million, not too dissimilar to the UK, 60 yeah. million people. He said, how many people do you think are dying like all the time from, from bombs and things. And I sort of said, I don't really know. He said, well, you know, when you think of it that way, there's 60 million people living in a country. Yes. There's a conflict that affects however many, thousand people but actually most people are just getting on with their lives on a day-to-day -day basis and when you think about it from a statistical point of view you could be very very unlucky to get mixed up in something mm. like that even in the middle of a war zone you know two years ago i was in syria i was in damascus and i was shocked in a really positive way to see that all of the Tourist shops were open, selling carpets and all the knickknacks yeah. in Damascus town centre. And it was very bizarre because you could sit in a wine bar, and there are some lovely wine bars in Damascus. And we even went clubbing one night. But it's very <laughs> strange sitting there having a glass of wine in, in central Damascus when you can literally hear the mortars and the bombs dropping in the suburbs three miles away. It's like being in Leicester Square and, and hearing the bombs drop in Chelsea. Yeah. And people just didn't bat an eyelid. And, 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 and I, I went and spoke to this carpet seller and said, have you sold any carpets? And he said, and he, he laughed at me, you know, while he's drinking his tea. He said, no, of course, I'm, I'm not sold a single carpet in seven years. I said, well, why, why are you open then? And he, he sort of cracked a joke about wanting to get away from the wife. But then he said something very profound. He said, well, look, you know, if, if I don't open, what happens when the first tourists do come back? And he said, we know that, you know, it might not be today or tomorrow, but one day they will return. And that sense of stoicism and resilience, I think, is really, really important in maintaining some semblance of hope in any situation. Yeah. And, and that's one at an extreme level. You know, these guys trying to hoping with, with such optimism that the situation will improve. So when you've been and seen things like that, it's very hard not to be humbled by it and complain about daily life here. Yeah. I mean, this too shall pass kind of thing, but it's, it's well, what else could I be doing or should I be doing? Exactly. You know, I can feel sorry for myself or I just open every day. And, and then it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned stoicism now. I mean, there's stoicism in terms of more or less, I slip up a lip, but then there's sort of stoicism in, in terms of the philosophy of life and everything. Mm. Are there any particular philosophies that sort of guide you in, in, in that respect and sort of keep you going? For me, I think, you know, who hasn't read the sort of, you know, a bit of a few quotes from Marcus Aurelius, you know, yeah. it's, I think it's important to 
keep a perspective. And that's for all my travels, that's probably what I, I come back and, and hopefully taking away something that is, is that sense of perspective, especially when you travel to war zones or places where there's extreme poverty and people are suffering. People say, oh, you know, how do you how do you deal with that on a daily basis? Well, I think all you can do is, is just come back and just be grateful for what you've got, really. The, mm. It's the simple things in life. It's it's being able to turn on a shower and drink water from a tap and go and have a cup of tea. And it's it's those things that that, that really I savour, actually. And, and, and I think that's hopefully a, a healthy way of doing it rather than dwelling on all the things that you couldn't change or all the things, all the people that you couldn't help. That comes back to your piece around resilience and 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 what others can can do because actually all you can do is control you know what what is it within your your gift to do so but it's recognizing that actually we still have choice and there's a lot of bad things going on and there's a lot of people that are suffering but okay right what can I do I go and open my carpet shop because when that first tourist comes back I'm ready waiting for them type of exactly. thing it's, yeah. it's interesting you talked about you know exploration is, is a long way off the sort of pith helmet and bygone era type of, of but who has inspired you from you know from days gone by in exploration or, or even sort of writing and photography where, where do you draw your inspiration from from those that have gone before you you know, I, I try and draw it from lots of different places. I think one of my favourite explorers of, of the olden times was Sir Richard Burton, who is one of the lesser well-known ones. But this was a man who, you know, was a real immersive explorer in the sense that he would go to places, you know, as was by necessity in those days, you wouldn't go away for a six-week trip. You'd go away for two years, six years. Mm. He was a political officer. He was a military officer. He was an undercover spy at times, but he spoke somewhere in the region of 27 languages or dialects. Wow. And to be able to do, I mean, he, he translated a lot of very important texts into English. He also, he translated the Kama Sutra into English. You know, he was, <laughs> he had lots of varied interests and his was a story of just sheer determination to, to be curious about the world. And, and he really was. And he traveled to, he went to Mecca in disguise. He smuggled himself into Harar, which was the forbidden city of Somaliland and, you know, survived with, uh, you know, he managed to get a spear through the face, but he said it only chipped one of his teeth. You know, it was just quite remarkable. That's a real stoic as far as I'm concerned. Where else did I get my inspiration from? Uh, I love the uh, sort of the post-war Sort of, I wouldn't, I'm not sure if they'd want to be called explorers because they were all very self-deprecating. But the likes of Eric Newby, Norman Lewis, and then more, let more recently, Don McCullen as a, as a photographer has, has has been a big inspiration. I've had the fortune to meet him a couple of times, and of course, you know, Sir Rand Fines as well. Yeah. So I've tended to sort of look far and wide for my inspiration. But ultimately, I think you know, anyone can can do this, anyone can be an explorer. It's just having the right mindset, I suppose, and, and sticking at it, come what may. Yeah, I guess that. And so thinking about what, what next for you then, clearly you've got a few sort of projects in mind, but, you know, you're getting itchy feet. It's now time to want to get out there again. What, what have you got planned for the, for the future in terms of trips and adventures coming up? Well, there's a bit of a backlog at, at the moment, of course, yeah, of course. but as soon as, as soon as I get back on the road, you know what, I'd love to do a, I've, I've got into motorbiking recently. I'd love to do a really long distance motorbike journey and i think south america is the is the sort of continent that i've explored the least so maybe i can combine the two there and do a do a big trip across south america fantastic that sounds awesome hey leveson we, we, we can chat all day about the adventures and everything else like this but if, if people are interested in in following your work a little bit more how can they find out more get in touch with you 
Sure. So I've got a I've got a website which is just levisonwood.com. You can see on there all of my new theatre dates that are coming up next year. Yeah, you can you can get all my books on any good bookshop, and, and yes. of course follow me on social media, Instagram or or Twitter. Oh, fantastic, Levison! It's it's been remarkable chatting to you. I'd love to chat to you at some point again in the future. Thanks so much for just bringing a sort of taste of uh, of adventure to give yourself the chat, and also some of the lessons that we can draw from that. We'll follow your story with interest. But for the time being, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed my chat there with Levison. That's a a classic example of a listener to this podcast getting in touch and suggesting that I have Levison on the show. And I'm so glad they did because that was just fascinating. And I think just listening to that, you know, we can all go to that place where we imagine ourselves as the modern day explorer, you know, following the footsteps of some of the greats that Levison mentioned there. But but equally, we can all begin to become the explorer of of our own environment, even if it's not going overseas there's so much that we can explore closer to home and i guess during pandemic a lot of us have had our eyes opened to what's literally on our doorstep so i hope you enjoyed that chat with leverson i'd love to chat with him again uh, perhaps after pandemic when he gets his explorer boots back on and just see what he's up to but in the meantime if you'd like to connect with me please head on over to peterlewiscoaching.com get in touch suggest which guests that you would like to hear and also what subjects you might like me to explore and i thank you for your support this podcast please share it widely it's on most podcast platforms that are out there in the meantime look after yourself and look forward to seeing you on the next one